The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me uh, ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is where we'll be to this morning. And uh, Lord willing, we'll walk through verses 29 through 34. Uh, I've titled this sermon, Don't Wait for the Resurrection to Start Living. Um, I guess you've heard probably of people who have uh, spent their lives kind of just wasting it away. Uh, There was a particular World War II uh, Japanese soldier who, after the war ended, spent 29 years stationed at his post, refusing to to leave because no one ever told him that the war had ended. They tried to get word to him. They dropped pamphlets in, but the last thing he had heard from his commanding officers was, don't leave until you hear from us. And so he took those pamphlets and he assumed that it was a a plot of the enemy and he disregarded those. He fought off neighboring villages and villagers for 29 years before he really kind of understood and got the message that the war was over. It's an amazing story, isn't it? We look at that and we would say, that's either a life that's wasted or one that's to be admired. Well, I would tell you that there are a lot of people who today are professing Christ, and all they're doing is waiting until He comes. They've professed Christ, but they're not really living with any sense of urgency toward the gospel. Instead, they're just killing time, waiting for Him to come. And they they long for that day, but that day never translates into this day. And so I I want us to look at this little section of Scripture this morning, and I want you to see that I think Paul wants us to see, obviously God wants us to see, that we don't need to wait as believers for the resurrection to begin to live. Now let me, before I just dive into this text, let me remind you, if you've not been here, or maybe you have, just a little bit of background There is a group in this church at Corinth who are teaching, who are believing that there is no such thing as the resurrection. They they believe that Jesus was raised because that was part of the original message that they heard when they came to faith in Christ, but they are now denying the fact that anyone else would would be raised. They they take this position because they believe that that the physical matter of flesh is evil, that it's the seat of evil, that that why would there be any need for this body to, to be in the presence of God? We talk about going and living with heaven, in heaven with God, but the reality is one day Jesus is going to come and God's going to bring the new heaven to the new earth. And there's going to be this existence, and they would say, well, what, what use does a physical body have there? Well, in saying this, Paul has built a case. He's defended the resurrection of Christ. He's looked at what would be true if there were no resurrection, and, and he's, he's walked them through just sort of the, the lack of thought that's gone into their position. And he's tried to tear it down and show them that what they're believing and teaching is, is false. And now he's going to come from an argument at an argument from a purely practical perspective. And I want you to see two things this morning out of this text. First of all, that behavior betrays belief, and then that belief brings behavior. Okay? Those are the two things that I want to show you this morning. I'm going to try to walk through these without taking shortcuts, but also being sensitive to your time as well. Uh, So let's read this together, and then we'll, we'll jump in. 
Verse 29, 1 Corinthians 15 says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The first thing I want you to see out of this passage is that behavior betrays belief. In other words, what we do actually tells what we really believe. We may say we believe one thing, but what we do tells what we really do believe, right? We, we know this to be the case. Uh, this verse is one of the toughest in all of the Bible when it here talks about, verse 29, what do people mean by being baptized for the dead? Um, there's, this, this verse has caused a lot of confusion among a lot of people. People look at this verse and they, they take it out of its context and look at it just in its, in its, by itself and they say, well, baptism for the dead is in the Bible, therefore it must be okay. But we know this can't be true. Just because something is included in the pages of Scripture doesn't mean that it, it is okay or that it's sanctioned or promoted as being right. After all, adultery is also in the Bible. Drunkenness is in the Bible. Uh, all of these other things that we would say, those are not right. We would say, we would never look at those and say, well, then they must be okay. Instead, it's incumbent on us that we look at this and say, what does the Bible actually say about this issue? What, is the, what does this word mean when he says this to them? Well, honestly, we don't really know. Uh, there are probably, in, in commentary after commentary after commentary, at least 40 different uh, guesses as to what Paul's meaning here when he says, then why are they baptizing for the dead? We really don't know. We can't say with any real certainty. And, and I would point out to you that this is what happens when you read someone else's mail. Uh, you know, not that the Bible wasn't written for us. It was. But originally, there was an author, Paul, who was writing to a recipient, the church at Corinth. And they knew what he meant, and he knew what he meant, but now, thousands of years later, we don't know all of the details that went into this, and so we can't say with any certainty what this does mean. But it doesn't mean we're lost on it. We can then go outside of this letter, and we can go to the rest of Scripture to look and see, well, where else does Paul talk about baptism and salvation and resurrection and the dead? And we, we may not know what he is truly saying here, but we can look at the rest of his teaching and the rest of the teaching of Scripture and see that he's not actually endorsing this. He's not saying that, that this is to be commanded, that we can be baptized in proxy for other people, that their salvation can be achieved by us taking their name and going into the baptistry for them. This is the practice of Mormonism. One of the things they do is, is this is essential for salvation. It's it's. Baptism in water is essential for salvation. So, in the Mormon faith, if someone has, has 
professed faith, if you will, but never had a chance to follow in baptism and has since died, then someone can come along on behalf of a friend or a relative and they can go to one of the temples and adopt that person's name and be baptized on their behalf so that in eternity that person is free to either receive or reject that offer of baptism. But it will complete their salvation. We know Paul's not saying this. Paul's not saying that we could, we could help anyone to be saved. We bear witness, but none of us save anyone else. We can bear witness to how we are saved, but that's as far as it goes. We know that Paul, in other places, teaches that faith must be personal, that it must be received by the individual. Paul could be referring here to a pagan religious group in the area that was practicing this and it was influencing some of the Corinthian Christians. Uh, He might have been meaning that instead of saying, why do they baptize for the dead? Maybe because of the dead. And in fact, what he he could be saying is that, that you who are now followers of Christ and have followed through and been baptized, because in that day, it was synonymous with true conversion. He might have been saying, It was the witness of these who you watched and you saw the reality of the gospel in their lives. And that led you to the point of receiving Christ and professing him and following through in baptism. But at the end of the day, we don't know. We just don't know exactly what Paul's saying, but we know this. We know that Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, another section that Paul wrote, says... For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me tell you something. If you're here today and you're wondering about baptism, you're coming in maybe from a, another denominational background or maybe coming in from outside the church at all. You've never had church background. We had the membership class this morning. We had about 23 people in that room. And one of the things I had them do was to share their background, their story. And, and if you get a chance to walk around that hall, just peek your head in and just look at all the different denominations that are listed on the board. And if you're coming into a Baptist church and not really understand this whole baptism thing, let me just tell you off the, off the, off the bat, baptism does not save. It, it, it cannot save you. It symbolizes what God has done in you when you turn from sin and trust Him, but it does not save. I often tell uh, children and sometimes adults before I take them through those waters, I'll point to this ring and I'll say, you know, this is my wedding ring. Yeah. Well, does this ring make me, me, me married? Well, no. Well, what does this ring do? Well, it just shows that you are married. So I'll take it off my finger and I'll say, well, if I take this ring and and I put it on your finger, does this mean that that you're now married? No. You know, it's just a symbol to show what's actually happened. And yes, this is more than a symbol, but I want you to see that Paul never says baptism is essential for or brings about salvation in any way. Baptism also, he says, is an act of personal obedience. That Romans 4.3, he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, what, he, what he's saying here is, by naming Abraham, he's saying that there was a point in Abraham's life where Abraham had to come face to face with his need of salvation. He cannot get it 
by being related to someone else. Maybe you're here and your, your mom was a strong believer. And somehow, way, you're counting on her faith to have rubbed off on you in order to make you sure and ready for heaven. Paul says here that it's got to be personal. Have you turned from your sins and trusted Christ yourself? We also know that Paul says, or whoever the writer of Hebrews is, says that it can't be meaning here proxy baptism because death is the end. It's, it's, it, death's not the end in that we just cease to exist, but death ends all opportunity to be, to be saved. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed for man once to die, and then after this comes the judgment. It, does, it doesn't say, after this comes another last opportunity if someone were to ba- be baptized for you. It's, it's the end of opportunity. So, what do I think this means? When he says here, what do, what do I think he means when he says, why are they being baptized for the dead? Well, here's, here's what I think he means. And this is why I've taken time to develop this just a little bit. Again, just a guess. But I think based on the context of the letter and what we've been looking at, the fact that some of them were saying there is no resurrection at all, I think Paul was saying if you really believe that, that there is no resurrection, then why are you participating in a symbolic act of obedience that symbolizes what you say doesn't exist? Because think about it. When we take someone into the water and we we lay them back into the water... We bury them with Christ. And then we also raise them to walk in new life. What is that symbol? It symbolizes the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but also that they too will follow. That one day they will die. They have died with him in faith. And one day they will die. But just like he was raised, they also are believing and professing that they will be raised as well. I think this is what he's saying here. In other words, Paul is saying to these Corinthians who are arguing that there is no resurrection, your behavior is betraying what you actually believe. You're saying you don't believe in a resurrection, but yet you're doing what shows that you do. You're saying one thing and doing another. And people do this all the time. Even atheists at a funeral will say things like, you know, Bob was a good guy. I'm sure he's okay. Or they'll say things like, you know, he's in a better place. But wait a minute, you're, you're an atheist. You say there is no God, and if there's no God, then there cannot be a heaven or a hell. So they're saying one thing and doing another. Why? I think it's this. I think it's because deep down they, they look at the world around them, and they see the evidence of God all around them. And in in their heart, deep within them, they know as they are in the quietness of their own lives that there is a God, that they they have offended Him, that their sin condemns them. They know that, that there's got to be some way to appease this God. They just don't know how unless someone tells them. I think they drive around in their cars wondering how they can be made right. They carry guilt. They look at They do exactly what is described for us in Romans 1 where it says what can be known of God is plain. Yet, 
They suppress it in, in unrighteousness. Maybe you're here today and you're saying one thing, but you're doing another. Maybe you're here today as a skeptic. You came with somebody and, and you really just want to get them off your back. And you're, think, you're thinking, there is no God. This thing's all made up. I'll just go and get them off my back. But when you leave here, you know something's not right. You're saying one thing, but you know in your heart another. And I would just challenge you to be honest with yourself. To come to grips with the fact that this thing is indeed real. God has so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Be honest at least with yourself to admit that. You know in your heart how you are not the God you wish you were. You want to be your own God, but you just can't because you know how much trouble you get yourself into. You know how unwise and foolish some of the decisions that you make are. And I want to ask you, to challenge you, to stop suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and turn to God and be saved. Second thing I want you to see in this is not only that behavior betrays belief, but Paul goes on. And, and, he, and he, I just want to lump the last several verses together because I think it communicates the, the main gist of what he's saying. I won't read those again, but in 30, 30, 30 through 34, he begins to talk about why, if there is no resurrection, then why are he and the others that are serving as missionaries and planting churches, why are they suffering like, the, like they are for this thing that would be a lie? Why, why would they not just eat and drink because tomorrow there's just death? I mean, why would they waste their life, their one life on this? This past Friday uh, was 19 years since I proposed to my wife. Uh, we, it kind of hit us as we were standing in the kitchen on Friday morning. Uh, 19 years ago, January 24th, I proposed to my wife after, after three months of knowing her. And here we are, still married and still together. God's been good. Uh, I want you to know that it was a terrible proposal. It was awful. In fact, it may go down in, as, in, in history as one of the worst ever proposals. Um, it was that night I had planned it, and I had bought the ring, and I had the ring in, in my pocket, and I went to pick up Lana, and, and I had all this planned. Even though it was the dead of winter in eastern Kentucky, I was going to take her out for a nice dinner, and then we were going to wind up at the Cumberland Falls where there's an overlook there and, and where the moon was out, and I was going to propose to her there, and it was going to be so sappy that it could be a Hallmark movie. And when I went to pick her up that night, I said, uh, I was thinking we might go to this restaurant Oh no, I'm kind of tired, and it's pretty cold. I really don't want to don't want to do all that. How about we just go to Sonic? <laughs> Sonic. How am I going to propose at Sonic? You know, <laughs> maybe maybe I could have the girl on roller skates come like rolling it out, you know, <laughs> in, in a hot dog or something. I don't know, but I thought, well, I, I'll. I'll go with it, and then we'll still go to the falls. It'll, it'll, I'll make it work. So we get there at Sonic. We order this $5 brown bag special. We eat. And then I said, well, let's, let's drive up to Cumberland Falls. It'd be pretty up there. Oh, no. I don't want to go all the way up there. Uh, let's just go to a movie. A movie? Really? What movies are playing? It was 1995. Interview with a vampire. 
with Tom Cruise. So I sat through that movie in in Corbin, Kentucky, and I had that ring in my pocket the whole time. I don't remember anything about the movie, and neither does anybody else because it was that bad, you know. I sat there thinking, how in the world am I going to do this? And we walked outside the theater afterwards, and, and I had this ring in my pocket, and it was burning a hole in my pocket, and by now it was beginning to ice. The parking lot was getting slick. We should be heading back to our town because it was about 12 miles away and it was ice and I was driving a little pickup truck and it wasn't four-wheel drive, which wouldn't have helped me in, in ice anyway. Right there on the spot in the parking lot of that movie theater with ice falling all over us, her wanting to get into the truck, I got down on one knee and said, I've waited to do this. I wanted to do this in a special way, but it just didn't happen. So will you marry me? And she said yes. (laughs) You see, belief brings behavior. We had dated for three months, and on the first date, both of us knew. Both of us knew that God had put us together, that we loved one another, that this thing was beyond anything that we had ever experienced. And I don't advise that. If you're sitting over here, parents, if you're sitting over here as a youth, you know, don't follow that plan, okay? Uh, But... I knew, and we had talked about it, that that we knew that I believed that she was right for me. Now, if I would have never proposed to her, would she still have believed that I meant what I said? Absolutely not. If years go by and I'm still saying, baby, you are the one for me. I just know it. God has shown me that. But I never get the ring out and we never decide to join together in marriage to to do life together, then she would say, I don't really believe you anymore. And she would eventually wind up leaving. See, behavior brings, or belief brings behavior. If I really believed that she was indeed the one, then I would have to put my money where my mouth was. And this is what it means for us as believers. If we really believe the gospel, then we've got to also put our money where our mouth is. I want you to see how Paul behaves. In verses 30 through 32, he says, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, he says, if, if I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says to them, look, it's not only your behavior that's betraying what you really believe, but look at our example. What we believe is showing itself in how we are behaving. These were not empty words from Paul. This was not him just speaking this Paul talk. But he really knew what it was to die every day. Listen to some of his own words. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. It means he was whipped five different times, 39 times each. His back would have been scarred from all those whippings. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Anybody here ever been stoned? Well, I probably shouldn't ask that. That's a different kind of stoned. <laughs> have you ever been 
I shouldn't have gone there. Those things just sort of pop into my head sometimes, and the filter doesn't quite catch them. Sorry about that. But any of you ever had someone throw rocks at you, trying to kill you because of your faith? He says, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. One of my greatest fears is to be floating in an open ocean. For a night and a day, floating in the sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. This was the cost of following what he believed. When Jesus appeared to Saul and knocked him off that horse and blinded him and called him to be a follower and an apostle to take the the gospel to the Jews, he believed it. And it showed up in the way that he lived. 2 Corinthians 1, he says, this is probably what what he's talking about when he says they fought with beasts at Ephesus. He was in such despair that they thought their lives were over. The the language there is, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life. In essence, what they're saying is, God, just go ahead and take us. To live like this, if there is no resurrection, would simply be masochism. It would just be deriving pleasure from pain. Paul says that would be foolish. Paul believed there was indeed a resurrection which led him to action. In 2 Corinthians 4, he goes on to talk about that they are crushed, uh, they're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. He knew that all of this was happening for a reason. The reason is that death might have been at work in them, but he says that life is at work in you the gospel through us. I'm concerned. I'm concerned that America at large is living a soft Christianity. That those in America who are taking the name of Christ, it is soft. That it would not stand up in a time of great turmoil. I'm, I'm concerned that many Christians in America are carrying crosses that have been sanded smooth so that they would not even get a splinter. They're listening to Christian radio that promises a positive, uplifting message and strips it of the message that says, Come and die. Like a dog who's been neutered. We might still bark and scratch and even chase our tail once in a while, but we have lost something of what it really means to be a dog. I see people who say they believe, but if they really believe, and if that belief is measured in the amount that they are willing to risk, I'm left wondering. And this is not me up here pointing fingers. This is me wrestling with my own heart. I see guys like Caleb and them going to the nations and going to dangerous places that they can't even mention to us on a conversation for fear of being found out and imprisoned or worse. And I wrestle with my heart. Am I willing to risk? Is my faith 
really that strong that I would go to a dangerous place that might mean that I would be killed for following Christ? And the answer is, I hope, but I don't know. What if, what if God were to pull back his hand of protection from America? What if, what if he pulled back his hand that protects us and the church in America began to really experience persecution? What would happen to the church in America? I, I dare say, I believe it would look very different overnight. This is, not, this is not judgment on any one person because remember, I'm wrestling with this myself. I would simply add to that question, how do we know that he won't? We've come to, we've come to take for granted the protecting hand of God and it has made us soft in how we follow him. It has made us soft that we, we fear even going across the street in the freedom of America in the Bible Belt of the South, which is getting less Bible Belt every day, but, but still here, people will be nice and polite and for the most part listen to our conversations. And we fear even that, to go across the street and risk embarrassment and rejection and alienating a neighbor. Listen, I want to read something to you. I know it's getting late and I, I, want, to, I want to finish this up, but I, I want to challenge you as well. John Piper wrote a blog uh, a few weeks back entitled When We Send a Person to His Death. It was written December 7, 2013. Now, listen to this. Ronnie Smith was shot and killed in Benghazi, Libya on Thursday. He was 33. He was a husband and father. One of the reasons I want to respond is because Ronnie wrote to us at Desiring God, which is John Piper's ministry, wrote to us at Desiring God last year and told us that one of my messages was significant in leading him and his family to Libya. Now Anita is a widow, and his son Hosea has lost his father. John Piper says, How do I feel about sharing in the cause of his going to death? I came to tears this morning praying for Anita and Hosea. Weep with those who weep was not a command in that moment. It was a sorrow rolling over me. I remember being 33. That's how old I was when God called me to the pastorate. I was starting my ministry at the age Ronnie's ministry ended. And Jesus's too. After sorrow and sympathy, my response was and is prayer. Lord, give Anita great faith. Help her to weep, but not as those who have no hope. Make that little fellow proud of his daddy. May he grow up thrilled to be in the bloodline of such a man. May they live on the glories of Romans 8, the groanings of this fallen world of waiting, and the rock-solid assurance that though we are being killed all day long, nevertheless, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Then I am sobered. Ronnie is not the first person who has died doing what I have encouraged them to do. He won't be the last. If I thought death were the worst thing that can happen to a person, I would be overwhelmed with regret. But the whole point of Ronnie's life is that there is something worse than death. So he was willing to risk his own life to rescue others from something far worse. And he could risk his own life 
Because he knew in, in, in his, his own risking and dying would work for him an eternal weight of glory. And he knew God was able to meet every need of his wife and son. We're not playing games, John Piper says. When I preach that risk is right, I know what I'm doing. When I say God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, especially in suffering, I know what suffering may mean. When I say, fear not, you who you can only be killed, he says, I take seriously the words of Jesus. Some of you they will put to death, but not a hair of your head will perish. And finally, John Piper says, I call thousands of you to take Ronnie's place. They will not kill us fast enough. Let the replacements flood the world. We do not seek death. We seek the everlasting joy of the world, including our enemies. If they kill us while we love them, we are in good company. Jesus did not call us to ease or safety. He called us to love for the sake of His name everywhere, among all peoples. Anita and Hosea, I love you. I am sorry, so sorry for your loss. I admire you and Ronnie profoundly. Hold fast to this. God has not destined you or Ronnie for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And church, that blog post moved me. To my knowledge, I have never preached a sermon calling people to risk it all for the glory of God and seen them go out and do that to their death. But John Piper, in all those years of ministry, can say that it wasn't the first time that it had, it had happened. And I, I wrestled in my, in my soul thinking, if that were to happen, if I were to get a letter from a family that he had followed the directive in one of my sermons and then went to die, how would I feel? And at the end of the day, when I wrestle with this, I, I land in the same place that John Piper lands in. Risk is right because the glory of God is so great that He is worthy of the worship of all peoples in all places. You say, well, that's just preacher speak. Let me tell you something. I got choked up when we were singing a minute ago. And I don't do that. I'm not an emotional preacher. I don't try to manipulate you and, and, and pull on your heartstrings. But I got choked up, not at what we were singing. I got choked up when I looked across the room. And I, I saw my daughter. With hands in the air. Asking God to help her believe that he is better than all this world has to offer. And all of a sudden it hit home with me that this thing that I'm praying for, that I'm calling you to, could become reality in my life. One day, my 13-year-old daughter, if God were to lead her, if, if my soon-to-be 15-year-old son, if God were to lead him, may leave and go from the safety of this land to a land that wants to kill them for following Christ.
And as I looked across the room and I saw my daughter over there, I still came to this place, still in pain. It would be tough. But I looked over there and I said, God, if that's what you want for her, then God, take her and use her. Church, I would, li- I would like to just ask you and challenge you to consider your place in fulfilling the Great Commission. Do you believe that God is worthy of the worship of every single person on the planet? Do you believe that without the Gospel, they will die and enter into something that's worse than death? Do you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead and if, if you die in following Him, that He will also raise you? Then if you do, what are you waiting for? There will be those who hear your commitment as you step out to follow Him and they will say, well, that's not very wise when we know what's going on in the world. That wouldn't be very practical to leave and go right now. I mean, you've got your whole life in front of you. You know, it's, it's very dangerous over there. And I don't believe God would want you to go into a place where it's dangerous. I think, I think He would want you to be safe and happy. And the reality is, we have to rip pages after pages from our Bibles to make that message preach. Because the overarching message of this book is that it started with God. That God gave His only Son. That He was indeed the first missionary who risked it all. Who went to the cross and who did in fact die a sinner's death. But He had no sin of His own. He did it on behalf of you and I so that we might be forgiven but not so that we could be forgiven, so that we could live comfortable, happy lives for 70, 80, 90, 100 years. But instead, so that we might indeed risk it all for His glory to take the only hope to the nations. So church, what are you waiting for? Don't wait for the resurrection to start living. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that right now there are people in the room that are thinking it's, it's late, it's, it's later than where we usually go, and God, I pray that you would just keep any of that from, from entering the mind. Lord, I pray that based on what we've heard, God, that we would come to a place where we say, not just, not just it's okay to be late for lunch, but far beyond. God, I realize that there are people in this room that you will not call. You will not call to the 1040 window. There will be, most of the people in this room, you will, you will not call to go to East Asia or to anywhere outside of their current context. But some you will. And God, it's my prayer that you would do so. And God, I don't put any parameters on you. Lord, I lay myself out there, I lay my wife out there, my, my children out there, and God, I say, take us and use us. However you might use us, wherever you would, 
God, for those that you won't call to those other places, God, I pray that they would in no less of a way begin to live for your glory here and to risk even here. To be willing to go across the street or across the world so that you might be worshipped. I'm reminded of another saying from John Piper. That missions still exist because worship doesn't. There are places in the world where you are not known and they are not worshiping you there. So God, lead us to continue the work of missions for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And I'll be honest, I don't know how to end this other than just to open it up and say whatever God would lead you to, do that. I'm going to be seated right down here on the front. If you need to talk, I'd love to talk with you. But other, other than that, Ethan will kind of lead us through how we're going to close this service. This is a time for you to respond. You just be sensitive to his leading and be obedient to him. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.